0: Good to be back with you. Hope you had a good Christmas and good New Year's. Um, we spent about uh, a week traveling about 1,800 miles in a car. <laughs> so we're, I was so happy uh, Friday afternoon to get back and uh, drive into my driveway and sleep in my bed that night. It's always tough uh, doing that, being on the road, visiting family and friends and stuff. So I uh, hope you had a good, good holidays. For those of you who are new with us or have not been here in a while, um, just to bring you up to date where we are, we're kind of back uh, to where we kind of were three weeks ago. We started back in September with a process uh, where we're going through the whole Bible and we're using a book called The Story. The Story is basically a chronological uh, Bible. It's in order, it's abridged, it's, it's, uh, it's condensed in a sense. It has not everything in Scripture, but it has a large portion of Scripture. And it's done in chapter format where there's 31 chapters and uh, we're going through it. We started back in September, we took a break for three weeks during the Christmas season and uh, we're back to chapter 15 today, so we're kind of still in the Old Testament. We have about another six weeks in the Old Testament, then we'll get to the New Testament, and then we'll finish up uh, the story by the end of April. Uh, but as we've traveled through this, it, just because you're kind of maybe jumping in the middle, it, it's, there's, it's all right. Just to let you know that if you'd like to get a copy of the, of the story, that we do have copies uh, back at the welcome desk as well, uh, the information table, and you can uh, do that there as well. But... Uh, Today we kind of start, there's a section we're gonna start today uh, on the prophets and I want to talk today kind of an introductory thing about the prophets of what they did and then we're gonna spend a little bit of time at the end of the message talking about specifically one prophet and also over the next several weeks we'll be looking at the the message the prophets had to do but today I want to start off by talking about warning signs Uh, warning signs and warning labels you know there's there seems to be all kind of ridiculous warning signs and warning labels everywhere Uh, as I was doing some research for this uh, message I looked online and there was a, there was a site for this group in Michigan. I, don't, I can't remember what they were called, but their whole deal is to look at uh, 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 unnecessary warning labels on packaging because people are always concerned about uh, lawsuits. Uh, we live in a litigious society, and so people put warning labels on everything for all kinds of ridiculous things. And they had some examples on the site. For instance, there was a picture of a, of a baby stroller there on the site, and on the on the label on the baby stroller it said this: "Remove infant before folding." I would have never thought about you know. Thought about that. Remove the infant before folding on a baby stroller. Uh, Another one is this there was a picture of a Batman costume, and it was a label on that, and the warning label said this Warning, cape does not enable the user to fly. Everybody knows that Batman doesn't fly. That's Superman. You know? So, I mean, you know, what's the big deal? You know, everybody, how ridiculous. Uh, Or, or, you know, on a chainsaw, there's a chainsaw. There's a warning label on most chainsaws. It says what? Do not stop chain with your hand. You know, it really says that in a lot of chainsaws like duh. Then there were some really good pictures I saw of some signs that were out there, and I thought I had to show you three of these. Uh, the first one is this one. The first sign is this. This is real sign, okay? Real fence. I want to meet the person that tries to sit on the fence. They're not real smart, obviously. So that is, you know, you would think that's got some built-in uh, issues there about not wanting to do that, by the way. The second sign was this one. Look at this next one. Caution, this sh- sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of the sign. What's the sign for? I want to know. It's just a sign about a sign having sharp edges. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay? Also, the bridge is out ahead. You can't only really see that. Little tiny, little tiny words at the bottom, okay? Okay, next sign. Last sign was my favorite. True sign. Touching wires causes instant death, $200 fine. Uh, I thought, you know, I guess if you don't die, you get to pay the fine. So I don't know what the deal is with that sign. That actually is a sign in England. And uh, so that, I don't know if that makes sense or not. I've never been there. Um, But anyway, we have all these, lots of warnings that seem unnecessary around everywhere. Um, I wish I had my camera when I was driving down the road between between around Cincinnati, around the Beltway uh, last week. There was some sign out there I couldn't believe, and I, I couldn't, can't even remember what it says now, but I'm going like, I need a camera to take a picture. Uh, but there's crazy signs everywhere. But there are sometimes some signs that we need to take uh, heed of. There's some warning signs out there as well. For instance, um, anybody, you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? A few of you here. I understand there's lots of warning signs around there because you can, you can get... In trouble. The reason there's warning signs at the Grand Canyon since 17, in late 1700s has been over 700 people that have died uh, around the perimeter or in the Grand Canyon area from various things. Some of them in the, in the river, some of them, you know, doing different things. But a lot of them just did not heed the warning signs that were there because uh, there's a lot of rocks that crumble on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and so that's a really reason. I mean, even this past, I think this past summer. There was, uh, in the paper, a young girl who was, her boyfriend was taking a picture of her, and she got too close to the edge, and the rocks crumbled, and she fell to her death. And so there's some warning signs that we need to take heed off. In the Old Testament, God sent warnings to the people through a group of people called the prophets, and that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. Uh, and then we're going to be studying some of these Old Testament prophets. It says about prophets, in 2 in Chronicles, it says this about prophets, it says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. More often than not, we will see over the next several weeks as we look at the message the prophets had, they contain warnings that things must change or else. So often we think of prophets as people are foretelling the future. It wasn't so much that as it was like, Hey guys, if you don't straighten up, this is going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen. It was warnings about the way they'd gotten away from God. And uh, to bring us back to where we were in chapter 14 several weeks ago, we'd finished up in in the history history of Israel and the story of Scripture in the Old Testament. And what had happened is there had been a a period of prosperity when there had been kings, King David, a period of prosperity, then King Solomon. But the problem with Solomon was is that he married all these women. We, if, if you were here, you remember that as well. He married, had 700 wives, and and, and a lot of those had had uh, worshipped uh, idols, gods that were not the God of Israel, uh, the true God. And so what had happened was, in a real sense, that he had introduced into the kingdom uh, there, uh, these, these false gods. And then following that, the, uh, following that we, in chapter 14, we talked about how the kingdom uh, uh, had been divided into two groups because of, warfare between the, the groups of leaders. And, and the thing is that happened is, is the first uh, king of the northern kingdom was a guy named Jeroboam. Now we talked about Jeroboam and Rehoboam and all the Bohems back then. But the issue was is that Jeroboam uh, didn't want his people to go south to Jerusalem because if they went into the southern kingdom, what they would do is he thought that they would hang out there, stay there, they would... Not follow him anymore in his leadership in the northern kingdom. So Jeroboam basically opened up some storage units he had there where he had a bunch of old uh, idols from hundreds of years earlier, and they were supposed to have been destroyed, but they hadn't been destroyed. And so he pulls them out, he sets them out in different places for the people, and says, "Hey, don't go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. You got, you know, it's too far. You know, you can't find a parking place. uh, Whatever the issue is. And so what you need to do is hang out here, worship these things, worship here at these locations. And in doing so, what will happen is uh, you'll stay, in, and he didn't say this, but he said you'll be uh, 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 stay here and not, not become part of that southern kingdom. You don't want to go down there. So idolatry became more and more of a focus of both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel and of Judah. Eventually, though, as we read through the story, eventually there's a guy that becomes a king, and his name is Ahab. And Ahab was really a despicable king. It says this about him and. First Kings chapter 16, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years, and Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Uh, not only was Ahab willing to worship, but he had probably the most infamous wife of all time uh, in, in all of history. Her name was Jezebel. It wasn't a Jezebel, she was the Jezebel that uh, so often that's people are referred to and the thing is is that jezebel was a person who obviously was a very strong-willed woman and she set up idols herself and and from her gods that she believed in baal was the major person that she worshipped and and she was even so powerful and such an influence in the kingdom she had had some of the prophets of god there were other some prophets around killed as well but god raises up one prophet in particular in this kingdom to warn the people and his name was elijah and Elijah hears from God and is told to confront the people's idolatry. I want to tell you this, that any time a prophet's told to go tell the people something, it's probably not good news. It's going to be bad news. And so they're risking life and limb. And so in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it's not going to be on the screen, but this is just what he says. It says, as the Lord, this is the prophecy, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. There will be no dew no rain. They will not know the power and he says, if once this happens over this extended drought, they will know the power of God. Now, what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks is this whole thing of idolatry. And when we use the word idolatry, we don't use that term too much in our culture, do we? We don't think of that term. But idolatry is often the theme that the prophets are dealing with. It was the number one problem that seemed to be in all of Scripture. The first, of the, two, uh, the first two of the Ten commandments deal with idolatry. There's more than 1,000 verses in Scripture that refer to and talk about idolatry. Even one of the uh, commandments has the death penalty attached to idolatry. God takes idolatry seriously. And the question is why? Why is it such a big deal? Because we don't even it's not even on our radar most of the time. But I want you to, to, to remind you once again that what we have seen throughout the story so far and what we see in Scripture is that ultimately it's about giving glory to God, pledging allegiance to God. Be, God is first in all things. And as the people fell away to God, he, they were brought back to Him. It was about bringing Him glory. So where there is idolatry, God's glory basically is robbed from Him and is given to another. And God has a big problem with that. And so we read a ton about idolatry in the Old Testament particularly with the prophets. And we tend to skip over it because it doesn't seem that relevant to us. It seems that it was a problem for people a long time ago. But, you know, none of us have carved statues, do we? I mean, you have little carved statues that you worship at your house? You have golden idols, you have asherah poles. You're going like, what is that even that? What are those things? We don't have those things in our house. We're going like, nobody does that kind of stuff anymore. But is it possible that our hearts have not really changed? It's just that our idols look different than they used to. Back in last February, when I went to Africa and I was sitting over in a hut, in a mud hut, it was the chief's hut in a little in a little village on the on the border of um, Mali and Guinea. Uh, as I went there, it's a little town called little village called Era Medina. Actually, it was a big village. It had several hundred people that lived there. Um, the chief's village there. Most of the village and the huts they don't have they don't have furniture. <laughs> they you just kind of go and they have little. This this actually had, I guess you call it furniture if, if if you call it furniture. It was a couple of kind of uh uh things you could sit on. They were kind of like woven things and they're kind of long like benches, and, and they were focused on this one wall. And on this one wall is a bunch of things hanging on it. And I didn't really know what they were, they were things like horses' hooves and, and different little things that were different things. And I come to find out later from the uh, the translator, he says what they are, they're fetishes. And I'm going, I still don't know what they are. I'm going, like, a fetish? What's a fetish? Is that some kind of a disease or something? And, you know, and he said, no, fetishes are actually things that, that they think has magical power. Uh, they have, it can be any, almost anything that has some kind of, because they believe in animism, which is a type of religion that worships, uh, you know, the the different things of the of the earth. And and so they think, and so on the wall, I remember the chief pulling off the wall, one of the things, that was this big horse hoof with a bunch of hair hanging down and stuff like that, and he said... And I come to understand later that he thought, thought this was a powerful thing that he was going you know, to uh, um, uh, use to help us because he became our friend. I'm glad. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, you go to a, uh, 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 this primitive village in Africa, and here's their little furniture, and it's all focused on the wall, wall, and the focal wall is all about fetishes. Oh, how primitive that is. And then I come home, and I walk into my great room, and I noticed that all of my furniture in my great room is, is, is focused and it's arranged in a certain way. It's arranged about, it's arranged around uh, around our fireplace. And on our fireplace, right above it, is this uh, flat screen TV. I'm going like, uh, is there any parallel there at all? Into, I mean, about what we spend our time doing, what we worship? So just leave that there. We'll talk about that some more today. But the thing is, the question is, here we're going to talk about today is this. Where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope? What holds the seat of glory in your heart? Because so many of us are looking at something other than God to fill that position, that place of prominence in our life. For some people, it can be entertainment. For some people, it can be, you know, you come home from work after a long day, and what do you do? You plop down in front of the TV set, turn it on, and you worship. Well, we don't call it that. We seek comfort through that. We, we, We go to that, you know, to give us the comfort that we need. And we give us peace. Or maybe it can be a spouse. Maybe it's, you look to somebody to whom you say, I want you to complete me. Instead of turning to God and saying, God, you know, you're the only one who will never let me down. Uh, you look for somebody else. You look to a person to fill a position of prominence in your life. Or maybe it's money. Maybe you're simply saying, "You know, I need enough money to, make me sec- to have security to make me happy. Maybe that has become the thing in our life. In other words, I'm asking for money to do for me what God wants to do for me. Or my career, I want my career to identify me. I want to be known, uh, that's how I want to be known. Is it, that's the thing that's, that's the most prominent thing in my life. And so the problem in our culture today is not that we don't worship idols, not that we, we're not idol worshipers as well. I think we are just as much as people in Scripture. The problem is identifying what those idols are. And so what I want to do today for this uh, large portion of the message is I want to help us to identify a few of the idols in our own lives. Because the role of the prophet is to help people recognize the reality of idolatry. And I'm not a prophet, but God has called me and he called every pastor to, to speak God's truth, and which is one of the main things that the prophets did. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about some questions that we can ask ourselves that will help identify the idols that are that are in our lives. The answer to these questions has the potential ability to point out the this idolatry that's God's primary competition for us. So let me, let me ask you seven questions today. And you might want to write these down. I would encourage you this week to not only write them down, but to think about these and to answer these questions because I think one of the problems that we often have is we don't reflect enough on things. We get busy in life, we're busy, 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 and we never reflect upon what is really the purpose and the focus of our lives. And so these are questions for reflection that might help us Uh, to think about what are the idols and identify what they are. Okay, the first question is this. What are you most disappointed with? What are you most disappointed with? Is it your career? Your marital status? Your sex life? Your family? What are you most disappointed with? That points to something that you've placed your hope in. Instead of putting our hope in God, we put our hope in name, whatever it is. And some disappointment in life is natural. I want to say that. But constant disappointment in life is not. Maybe another way of asking that question is, what do you complain about the most? What do you complain about the most? It reveals something that you've put your hope in. That's one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves about what does we place in the prominence, into the God position in our life. What are you disappointed with? Question number two. What do you sacrifice your time and money for? What do you sacrifice your time and money for? The Bible says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. And you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, you can know the same thing. If you want to know what a person's priorities are, where their their focus in their life is, all you have to do is look at their checkbook and their their schedule. That will tell you exactly about the priorities of their life. If you really know about what we worship, look at how we spend your time and your money. And it reveals the gods within our heart. The third question is this. What do you worry about? What do you worry about? What causes you to think that if I lost this, life wouldn't be worth living? See, we worry about all kinds of things. And the only thing that's certain, and it's not death and taxes, okay, is God. God. And the thing is, is that we could lose everything, every relationship, every possession that we have. But do you sit around and worry about that all the time? Is that where you put your comfort, your strength? That's where your focus of your life is. What do you worry about? Number four, where do you go when you're hurt, when you get hurt? Where do you go when you get hurt? When life is hard, where do you seek your comfort? Do you come home after a long day and open the refrigerator and have some comfort food? We even have a thing for it now. A whole category of food. It can be anything. Instead of turning to God when we, to make ourselves feel better to get through stuff, we do it so often by eating or drinking or by just, just doing nothing. Or do you feel rejected by your spouse? What do you do? Do you enter the pagan temple of pornography? Or do you go to a website and have a relationship with someone else there? Is that how you find comfort? Where do you go when you're hurt? See, where we go for comfort reveals where we put our hope. It's kind of like this, you know, so often, uh, imagine there's a mom who has a kindergarten son, and for all the years up to kindergarten, the, the son has been totally dependent upon the mom. It's been, that's been the focus of that little child's life. But then the child goes to kindergarten, so often happens what happens, and many times that kindergarten child falls in love with their, ki- with their kindergarten teacher. Not literally, but you know what I'm saying. They, re- they really just beca- be- have this attachment to the kindergarten teacher. And sometimes mothers have a problem with that I'll just be honest with you, because they don't want to have this divided loyalty thing. They don't want to share the child, you know? And so one day the, the mom is at school volunteering uh, and she's out on the playground visiting with the teacher while the son is playing on the playground with the other kids, and the child falls and gets hurt, and the tears come and he starts running to the, where the mother and the teacher are standing. Who does he run to? Who does he run to? He probably run to the mother. Because she's been the person over all the years that it's been there. Every day he goes home, she's there. The thing is, when we go to something or someone other than God first with the hurt or pain of this life, in a way that reveals that that's become an idol in our life. You have to be careful. You know, do you turn to God? When you're going through a crisis, do you, you turn to your... The first thing you try to do is try to figure it all out yourself. That means your intellect has become your God. In a real sense. Question number five. What makes you mad? What makes you mad? What makes you angry? And I know this is going to mess up some of your days right here. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, Maybe your team loses. And it ruins your whole week. What does that say about you? Should I just stop here and go home? Hallelujah, Amen. You know, I mean, what does it say about you that you allow a sports team? You know, I'm going to watch the Washington Redskins today. I've been to Washington. I live on the East Coast, okay? I live three hours from Washington, D.C. almost all my life. I'm going to watch the Redskins today. But let me tell you, if they win, thank goodness. If they don't, okay, I'll go home and have, you know, i still have a good day. I don't worship them. What does it tell you about you? Or someone treats you with disrespect and it makes you angry because you have made other people's respect a God. What makes you mad? Number six, what brings you the most joy? What makes you laugh? This is where it becomes really challenging because it's not necessarily wrong to have things that give us joy or happiness, but many times these things are gifts from God. But instead of allowing these gifts to to draw us closer to God, what so often it does is we begin to worship the gift instead of the giver. So we've got to be careful about what we were see, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is temporary. It has to do with external circumstances in life and the things you have and the things you do. But joy comes from deep inside you. That happens regardless of the circumstance. You can have joy in the midst of a chaos. And sometimes we can't separate that, and so we try to always to seek happiness instead of seeking joy, and there's a big difference because you can't live at Disney World. Well, you maybe you could. I don't know, but I don't think I'd want to. After a while it'd become boring. Number seven, whose applause do you long for? Whose applause do you long for? Whose approval do you really live for? Your boss, your spouse, your parent, your friend? Whose applause you are living for shows who has the throne of your heart. We need to live for an audience of one. And that audience of one is God. I mean, you know, so often, I just have to say this to you, myself included, so often what we do is we worry way too much of what everybody else thinks, and we really don't have that have an opinion of God. And He's the only one that really counts. Ultimately. Eternally. See, ultimately this, an idol is anything or anyone other than God that takes the passion the value, the hope, the glory, the commitment of your life. An idol then is this cheap substitute in a sense for God where we look for something or someone to do for us what God wants to do for us. Let me give you an illustration. It's kind of like this. We have cheap substitutes all, all over the place. How many of you, if you're going to go out for ribs, good barbecued ribs in this area, where would you go? Famous days. I heard famous days. Anybody else? Anybody? That's all there is around here? Famous days? Famous days? Huh? Gracie's. Okay, I've never been to Gracie's. I don't have a clue. Uh, uh, Hickory whatever that place is. Hickory something else. Yeah, Hickory River. There was a place on the East Coast that used to have the greatest ribs of all time. It was called Darrell's. Darrell's was a chain on the East Coast. Uh, it, it was only in, in North Carolina, Virginia, and a few places there for many, many years. And I remember going there. Great restaurants. Gorgeous restaurants. I was so, just so, just so just. Let down yesterday when I was doing some research and I looked online to see what Daryl's was doing. It's gone from 28 restaurants down to one in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm going there someday. Get some ribs, real ribs. Because they had Adam's ribs and Eve's ribs. Adam's was just a bigger portion of Eve's ribs. That's all it was. But the issue was it was the best ribs. You know, when you think of going to ribs, you go get some real ribs, right? How many of you, when you think of ribs, you think of McDonald's? You know what their main commercials are right now? It's called McRib. McRib is a cheap imitation. I mean, it's kind of this process thing that kind of looks like a rib. Matter of fact, in schools, I understand, my wife told me this, she subs all the time. She said, in school, they have these ribs that kind of look like McRibs, and they call them, the kids call them rubber ribs. They kind of flop, you know, you pick them up. Ribs are not supposed to flop, are they? They're supposed to be, you know, pick them up and they're rigid, you know, because they're on a bone. But the thing is, is that we say sometimes, but after a while, you know, obviously people are buying McRibs. I'm not going to ask you to do a survey to see if you like cheap ribs or not, or substitutes. But the issue is they keep bringing McRibs back. That was years ago they were there and they keep coming back. They're like a, you know, something like a bad rash or something, I think. And the thing is, is obviously people are liking them. And so they've got to grow to like these cheap substitute ribs. And so often that happens in our life. We're surrounded by cheap substitutes for God and we quit noticing it and we kind of become used to it. And we start finding our security and happiness in things that aren't really real. But you know, I found out this to be true and this is true in life. And when we stop to reflect upon stuff, people will often ask this question. Ever so often do we have these moments when we think, is this all there is? Is this, I, I found a lot of guys and I deal with guys more than women because I'm a guy I guess I don't know but the issue is is a lot of guys in their 40s and 50s are starting to ask these questions and I've sat down so many times in the in the office and had conversations like you know I've been successful in the business world and I've, and I've gone done well with the business world and I've had all the success that everybody in the business world would ever want but is there more than this is there more than this have I settled for something that's not the most important thing. Is there more something more significant in life? If I let something else become my idol, it's not really what I should be focusing on. So God addresses idolatry. He speaks again and again through the prophets. And God speaks to Ahab, this this prophet we started off earlier talking about, through Elijah. And Elijah says a drought is coming. You've been warned. And through all this... You're going to see who the real God is. That's what Elijah says. You're going to see who the real God is. And something I have to let you know about this this scenario, because sometimes we don't get it from just reading Scripture. We have to know the background. Baal was predominantly seen as the God of weather who controls not only certain parts, but he controls the rain. Do you see what God's doing? What God's saying? He's saying they were worshiping Baal, this God of weather. And he's saying... God says, I'm going to withhold the rain. I'm going to to, uh, take away this thing that you've elevated to God's status in your life. They're worshiping the God of rain, so He withholds the rain. I don't think that we should be surprised in our life when we have a drought in our life that matches up to some area of our lives where we've elevated that area of our life to God's status in our hearts. Because God is not going to bless His primary competition in our lives. Sometimes we ask God, God bless my career. You know, give me that promotion. And if our career is the focus of our life, and that's all there is about life, and when our careers become more important than God, why would God bless that which is His greatest competition? Some people say, God bless me financially. Make my family financially secure. I just need to be making this much money. And if I have this much money, then, then I would have security and happiness. Why would God bless? That is as, as a competition because God says, "Turn to Me for your security and your happiness." See, we ask Him to bless an area of our life that is more important than Him. He's not going to do that. He's just not going to do that. And so we see Him withholding His blessing from Ahab and the Israelites. God wants to get the attention of the people, not because He's been being vindictive, because because He loves them. And he understands they need to get back to their priorities and get and get focused upon the right thing. But I also want to say that the reverse can be true as well. That when we place God in his rightful place, we should not be surprised when we look up at the sky and we see the rain falling. I cannot tell you how many times over 30 plus years of ministry that I've had people come into my office, maybe a young lady come into my office, and maybe she maybe she's in her thirties, and she said, you know, all for many, many years, she said, I was. I was so focused upon getting married, getting married, getting married, and always saying, God, send me the right person. God, send me the right person, because I thought that would be the ultimate thing in life that would make me happy. And said, once I started saying, God, okay, I'm going to leave it up in your hands. I trust you. He said, I, I can't believe how soon after that then I met the right person. Or I can't tell you how many times that people have come to me and said, you know, for years and years I struggled with this whole thing of, of my finances and stuff like that. And I finally got to the place of going, you know, I want to learn some skills and, and some things about it. But the thing is, is I, I, gotta, I, I finally came to the place of saying, God, I cannot deal with this myself. And so I'll leave it in your hands and I trust you. And they said, uh, uh, I started giving to you and, and trusting your plan for my life. And after that, things got better. Now, this is not a guaranteed formula, by the way. This is just examples. But I will let you know that God, in a real sense, wants to wants to get our attention, and that's what He was doing with the prophets. And so, in this scenario with Elijah and, and, and um, Ahab, Ahab kind of sets, or Elijah sets up what I call a cage match. I don't know if that's really a cage match, but, you know, it's like from wrestling. And, and the thing is, as he sets up this scenario that's match between the false gods and God. And I want to kind of end with this. It says in 1 Kings 18, it says, he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. This is what Elijah says. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went, sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. Why did they say nothing? Because they wanted both. They had this idea that we can do it all. We can have it all. We can just do everything. You can't do it. And I believe that we're the same way. It's not that we don't want God in our lives. We just want God and something else. We are satisfied to have something else share God's position of prominence and glory in our lives. And God just doesn't share. He says, I'm a jealous God. Jealous because I want you to know that the best thing you can do is is be committed to me because I have your best interest in mind. I love you. God says you're going to have to choose. Choose who is first. And so it goes, the story goes on. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. And then they called it on the name of Baal from the morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is the first time in history where people did trash talking. You know, people do it all the time now in sports, on basketball courts and football fields. You'll see it today in football games if you watch them. You know, trash talking, taunting. Elijah says, shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. They were trying to get the God's attention. They were doing everything in their power to get the God's attention because they thought this is what life is all about. And we look at them and we go on, how ridiculous. I mean, how ridiculous. You know, who in the world would do something like that, put all their effort into building this something that ultimately is not going to cause them the most joy and satisfaction they could possibly have in life? Who would do that kind of thing? But are we so different are we so different? We, we may not slash ourselves with swords. We may not dance around an altar, but we do all kinds of serious things. We have bled so many things for our gods. We have sacrificed so much of our life sometimes for our gods. I cannot tell you how many people have destroyed their marriages and their relationships because of a career choice. Because they focus all their attention upon their career. I, cannot t- I can tell you people... in. The people that I know, that, that during life, they have so much focused on their body image, they spilled their whole life at a gym. Now, I believe in working out, folks, but in moderation. Your primary family is at home, not at the gym. And so often people because, sacrifice hours and hours and hours at the cost of every relationship they have, and they become so focused upon that. I cannot tell you how many people have sacrificed real intimacy and a real relationship because of trying to go after sexual pleasure. They met on a bled literally, but they bled. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. Verse 36, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are the Lord our God and are turning their hearts back again. Elijah doesn't say, do this for me so I can get the glory. He says, do it for you, God, so you can get the glory. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. And once again, the story returns to its main thesis, the glory of God. God gets the glory. But it takes a while to get back there because the people have swayed so far away. See, the prophets were God's early warning system. Idolatry is still an issue today in our world. And God is still jealous for the hearts of His people. Because when we turn and make anything else a God in our life, Anything that we've mentioned today and a lot of other things we haven't even mentioned, when we do that, it's almost as if we're having an affair on God. That we we have turned away from God. That's literally what God it, it, it's like to God. And God is jealous for you, and He wants the, He wants the passion you have for your favorite sports team, for your decorating your home, for your golf game, whatever it may be. God is jealous for that passion that you have for those things, for your career, your car, your clothes. He's jealous for the time, the attention, the resources, and the affection that you give those things. And God is warning you that unless something changes, a drought is coming. And I believe we're in the middle of a drought as a people. I don't know if you feel that way or not, but I don't see us as being in a great place in our nation right now. As individuals, as a nation, we're in a drought. But the good news is, is we don't have to stay there. And the good news is, is God gives us a solution. Because at the end of the chapter in the story, this, this, this chapter 15 in the story, there's a, there's a little story there. And we didn't really go into it today. I just want to mention it. It's about another prophet. His name was Hosea. It's the strangest story in all of Scripture, I think. It really is. I really think it's a strange story. But God tells Hosea to do a strange thing. He says, first of all, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. That's strange enough for a preacher to marry a prostitute and get direction from God to do it. But then he finds out her name. Her name is Gomer. Wow, God, a prostitute named Gomer. you got to be kidding. But Hosea does that. He he obeys God. He follows God. And then the problem is, is that he takes her home. He, he buys her out of prostitution. He takes her home. And, and, and they have kids. And, and she's faithful to him for a while. And then she goes back to her old ways. She falls back into her old patterns. And she... And she's gone away. And, and Hosea goes back to God and God says, God, what should I do now? What do I do now? In Hosea chapter three, verse one, he says, This the Lord said to me, God saying to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, through they turn to other gods. He's saying, Hey, Hosea, I just want your life to be an image of how my relationship is to you as your people. You may have turned far away from me. You may have had other gods in your life. You may have turned away time and again. But God God says, I am not giving up on you. See, the thing that God wants to say to us and the thing He wants to say to us as people today as well is this. Regardless of where we've been, God has not given up on us. And as we will read and as we will study throughout Scripture for the next several weeks, every time God warns people and they, and they get to a place of recognizing their need, the next step is repentance, saying, God, not only am I sorry, but I want to turn and go the other way, and forgiveness. It's never too late. That's the good news, even of the Old Testament. See, even if you give your heart to another, even if God hasn't been what's most important in your life, he hasn't given up on you. He's still fighting to win your heart. He still wants to have a relationship with you. He still wants you to be his own because he loves you that much. So this morning, as we introduce this new section, we're going to be looking at this whole deal for the next several weeks and different ways looking at the same issue from different perspectives but i would challenge you this week to take those seven questions that we looked at earlier and spend some time being quiet and asking god god you know let me be as honest with between me and you as i can and if you find anything in your life in answering those questions that you that you feel like has become a god that's taken the place of your passions your your joys, your, your focus, your all those things in your life, then what you need to do and what you can do is to turn in repentance and see God once again and He will forgive you and He will bring you back to Himself. That's the kind of God that we serve. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.